Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We're going to talk about dog training, and we've had experience in dog trainers, haven't we? Yes, a, a few too many, if you ask me. That's right. In the last several years, we had three different dog trainers trying to give us some tips on, on training one of our dogs. And uh, This dog's pretty rambunctious, likes to pull on the leash a lot, would like to chase cars if she could. Okay. So uh, it's reasonable to ask for help. And they all have different methods, right? And I mean, widely different. One believed the dogs shouldn't be on the same level with us, with the humans, so didn't believe the dog should be sleeping in our bed or, on, or lying on the couch with us. That's right. And another suggested we fill a can with pennies and use that whenever the dog didn't do something we wanted her to do. That's right. And even another suggested medication like Prozac. Remember that one? I know. I'm not giving up my Prozac. <laughs> so do you ever wonder what the best methods of dog training are? I mean, personally, I do find this whole field confusing and, and unscientific. For sure. And there's so many books and so many different opinions as to the best way to train your dog. And so let's let's talk to an expert about this who is actually studying this stuff, okay? I now want to welcome Dr. Clive Wynn, researcher and animal behavior psychologist working at the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. Welcome to the program, Clive. Thank you so much, Laurie. Pleasure Cl to be with you. Thank you. Clive, talk about the confusion and misconceptions about dog training, because I know you study that. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I worry that, uh, that, that there's broadening confusion in the dog training community about ultimately what's the right and the wrong thing to do. And I think that part of this has grown because the single most popular dog trainer in the country, perhaps in the world, clearly has no scientific education of any kind and has promulgated a view uh, based around a, a garbled understanding of the concept of dominance. And a lot of better educated trainers have reacted against that in a way which I fear is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Now, Claude, you're and referring, is, you're referring yeah. to Caesar Malone, correct? Yes. Yes, that's right. Okay. And, um, and, and so I, personally, I can't see any, anything wrong with the concept of dominance. I mean, if you pick up a standard introductory textbook in animal behavior, there'll be a chapter or at least a section on the concept of dominance. Dominance is just the ability of one animal to control another animal's um, access to important resources. So if, if you're in a position where you control another individual's access to food, to shelter, uh, possibly to, to sexual partners, then you are in a relationship of dominance to that other individual. So the, so the mistake doesn't lie in talking about dominance. I think it's not an unreasonable thing to discuss in the context of our lives with dogs. The mistake lies in how that concept is interpreted. And I fear that Cezanne Milan interprets the concept of dominance the way that a layperson might think of that when they're thinking of two members of opposing gangs or of the same gang facing off in some violent confrontation. I like to say that if you're the one with the opposable thumb who can open the kibble bag or can open the can of uh, wet dog food, then you are, by definition, in a position of dominance over your dog. Mm -hmm. It has no further implications. You don't gain anything by an addition to being the one who provides the food, also giving your dog a small kick or a big kick from time to time. That's just nonsensical. So I worry that, uh, that we're beginning to get only more confused about basic concepts like dominance. And, and then I also worry that people don't deeply understand the different concepts of uh, reinforcement and punishment. Uh, 
punishment is anything, any, con- any um, consequence that you might provide that reduces the likelihood that a behavior will be repeated. And so to some degree, you can never get away from punishment. If there are behaviors and you, and you want them to reduce in frequency, the things you do are technically punishes. So a timeout is a form of punishment. But again, that doesn't mean to say that, that there's any advantage or any purpose in beating your dog or in any other way being cruel to your animal. And on the flip side, you know, positive reinforcement is not without ethical uh, issues. So uh, aside from any questions about how effective different ways of training dogs are, if you're using positive reinforcement, that means you're using high-energy, high-calorie treats. And with so many animals overweight today, we need to think about the ethical consequences of positive reinforcement as well as of punishment and negative reinforcement. Clive, we received probably two or three dozen books about training every year to review. And I'm paging through them, and Laurie's looking at and that's it's a collection of ideas almost thrown together, almost without a concept behind them. It's, it, the authors seem confused. Well, I, I must confess I do not read training books. I, I, I sit outside of that. What I notice, so what I read is I, I keep abreast of the scientific literature. Okay. And what stuns me, I mean, I'm, I couldn't train my dog to eat her own dinner. So I, I have plenty of respect for people who actually go in and actually try and be practical and helpful for the millions of dogs and their owners that need help. And I respect that. What I see is that people like me, scientists with an interest in dog behavior, are failing the trainer community. We are the ones who should be providing leadership. The new ideas should be coming from us. So what I see when I keep abreast of the scientific literature is that we're not even contributing to the conversation. So, for example, on the on the more positive side, um, I'm a tremendous fan of Karen Pryor's. I love her books. I think she works with great sincerity. And I think the kicker training is one of the better ideas out there. First of all, you make the sound of the kicker valuable to a dog by pairing it with food. So several times you simply go click, food, kick, food, and so on, until the dog comes to recognize that the clicker sound means that food is on its way. So, my, so the question then is, what have we as behavioral scientists contributed to understanding these processes and testing whether the clicker really does work? It seems like it ought to. What do we know as to how well it does work? And the answer is, I don't think there's a single paper in the scientific literature on clicker training with dogs. I mean, it's possible I haven't been keeping up conscientiously. Maybe there are now one or two papers. But a scientific literature and a scientific consensus takes many scientists at different places working in different ways and publishing their results. That's the only way that we have scientific knowledge. And we're just not doing that. We're simply completely failing to do that. Now, Clive, you also have an interest in the welfare of dogs in shelters. We've done a lot of work looking at the welfare of dogs in shelters. We did a series of studies trying to understand what it is when people come to the shelter and they're looking for a dog, what is it that they're looking for? People in the past did studies asking people what they were looking for. Sasha and I started from the presumption that people might not really know what they're looking for. They might be influenced by things that they don't even consciously notice. And so we made thousands of video recordings of dogs reacting to visitors in shelters, and we coded every single thing that each of those dogs did 
And then we looked to see which dogs got adopted and which dogs did not. And in that way, we were able to uncover patterns in the dog's behavior that influence people, even though nobody had ever mentioned this when they'd been asked what they were looking for. So, for example, one of the things that Sasha found was that if the dog licks, that is a major turnoff for the visitors. If the dog licks itself, that is unattractive to visitors. And if the dog licks any part of its kennel while a visitor is watching, that's almost like a death sentence for that dog. Oh. It is a very negative thing. Wow. Now, nobody had ever, when people had been questioned about what they were looking for, nobody ever said, I really do not want to have a dog that's going to lick itself. It just never came up. So, um, so I think that was very valuable. Uh, Sasha also developed interventions, ways of changing the dog's behavior short of employing a professional dog trainer. It's kind of, in a sense, trivial to say that if we know what we want the dogs to do, we could employ a professional to get the dogs to that place, to be doing the attractive things and not doing the unattractive things. But we started from the presumption that shelters are very short on resources, and we developed ways of improving the dog's behavior through methods that uh, can be employed just by volunteers that don't require professional training. The question of getting dogs out of shelters, which is ultimately the only good outcome, is to get free and home in a good home. We've also done some studies, not yet I fear entirely successful, trying to understand why people return dogs. If some shelters recognize that quite large proportions of the dogs they adopt out are getting returned to their own shelter or another shelter within a few weeks. And we've been trying to understand that, and we've been looking at interventions that might reduce the rate of returns. I'm afraid we haven't found the magic bullet for that yet, but I think it's a valuable enterprise, and we'll keep pushing away at that. We also know that shelters are very stressful for dogs. Several studies have shown that dogs in shelters are highly stressed, and we know that that produces unattractive behaviors. What we do not know, what nobody knows, is but what is it exactly about being in the shelter that is stressful? Because it's possible that if we knew that, we might be able to give shelters advice that might not be expensive for them to implement that would reduce the stress levels of dogs. We haven't started that yet. We don't have the resources to do that, but I would love to do that if I could find a partner who was willing to help us with the funding of that. And the final thing that I also want to develop uh, at the moment, a lot of shelters use temperament tests. They use them to identify which dogs are safe to be adopted into homes. They don't want to be liable for allowing dogs to be adopted that end up doing harm to people in homes. And some more ambitious shelters try and identify the personality of the dog and match it to the personality of the potential adopter. Now, the and, they, and some yeah. use them to determine if a dog should be euthanized. Right, absolutely. So... So these, temp uh, these are high-stakes temperament tests. This isn't like a little personality test you might do on the back pages of a magazine just for your amusement. In some cases, shelters are using temperament tests, exactly as you said, to decide who gets to live and who gets to die. What I, there are two things I would like to do. The first is I would like to develop a temperament test from the ground up. All the temperament tests that exist at present, it's not that they're foolish or misguided, but they were driven by people's intuitions about what is important and what is not important. And it ought to be possible to develop a test in a, in a kind of ideologically neutral way 
without having to rely on anybody's intuitions about what matters. It ought to be possible to do that. That's how psychologists work in developing new intelligence tests, new tests to identify like ADHD or any other psychological problem that a human being might have. There are well-established methods for doing that. What I would like to do is to take those methods and apply them to dogs in the shelter. Dr. Clive Wynn, animal behavior psychologist, thank you. Did you know that February is National Pet Dental Health Month? So, I want to talk about brushing your dog's teeth. Brushing your dog's teeth is a little like the way people view flossing of their own teeth. You know, it's important, but you never really do it often enough. Maybe you're more disciplined than I used to be about brushing your dog's teeth. But when you have had to watch your dog go through painful dental extractions, not to mention the sting of pain for said extractions, it's easier to get motivated and sustain a good oral hygiene regimen, however tedious it may be. So Josie was a wonderful, sweet dog. The second dog Peter and I had together. I first spotted Josie during one of my morning runs way back in the early days of our marriage when my knees were happy to run five to seven miles at a time. And so as I was running past a public golf course in my area, I spotted her sitting by the maintenance area. It was easy to tell that she didn't really belong there and automatically I diverted my run toward her and struck up a conversation with one of the employees there. So I learned that this dog, who might have had some collie and shepherd in her, but looked most like a tame wolf, had been hanging around the golf course for a few days and was being fed scraps of food by the workers. No one knew where she'd come from, and no one seemed to care much about what would become of her. So our meeting was fortuitous, to say the least. I ran home, I got into my car, drove back to the golf course, and with not much difficulty was able to coax this straggly, long-haired, dirty dog into my Honda. Of course, there was no collar, and we learned later there was no microchip either. But now she was my responsibility, and by extension, Peter's. But I have to tell you, even as I was driving her home, I had a feeling that Josie might become our newest family member. That's how precious she seemed to me at that moment. She knew she could trust me. We had her evaluated the next day after spending the night quietly quarantined in our extra bedroom. Our family vet found that she had two previously broken legs and an injured snout. It was so heartbreaking and infuriating to realize that this gentle being had been so badly abused. But there was more. The vet also determined that she had multiple abscessed teeth and suggested we see a dentist, which she did a few days later. By that time, Josie indeed had become part of the family. After a good grooming, she was stately and a real beauty. Paco, our Doberman Shepherd mix, accepted her at once, as did Peter, who was starting to realize what it's going to be like married to a dog and cat rescuer. And this all occurred early in our marriage in its first year. Fortunate for me, Peter had stuck around for many subsequent animal adventures. But back to the dentist, who regrettably confirmed that many of Josie's teeth needed to come out. The procedure occurred shortly thereafter, leaving her with only about half of her teeth remaining and a sore post-operative course. But she quickly healed up, and as far as we could tell, she never missed her teeth. Josie lived six more years with us, well into her teens. We are very grateful to have her as part of our family for so long, and what a wonderful chance to save the senior dog from who knows what. 
but thinking back about how she must have suffered with her mouth, filled with abscesses, still saddens us. And even to this day, it somehow motivates us to keep up with the oral hygiene with whatever dogs we have in our family. So... Most authorities recommend daily brushing, and I'm not going to restate too much of what is readily available to anyone who does a little research, but daily brushing is the main thing you can do to promote good dental hygiene. Concentrate on brushing the outside and the chewing surfaces, but don't worry about the inside surfaces as the tongue keeps those clean. If your dog is new to this, start gently, and don't try to get it all done the first time around. And start with your finger if you feel it's safe. Make sure to use dog toothpaste because human toothpaste could upset his or her stomach. And just keep up with it and make it a part of your routine. A little treat afterwards is certainly helpful. Our dogs simply like the chicken or peanut butter toothpaste we've been using, and that seems reward enough to keep them coming the next time around. Susie, our diminutive Ridgeback, doesn't really love the process, and it took her a while to get used to this. One trick Peter discovered as we were introducing her to brushing would be to wait until we came back from a walk in the hot weather when she would be lying on the cool tile floor panting with her tongue way out and not interested in anything but cooling down. Then Peter could adeptly brush at least half her mouth and sometimes all her teeth without her objecting. Gradually, Susie has gotten used to the brushing and now it's not a problem at all. So remember, daily brushing for all the doggies. And major support for Animals Today Radio comes from International Society for Animal Rights. For decades, ISAR has been a world leader in the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and its moral, social, and economic costs. Please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalsTodayRadio.com. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. If you had to guess... What would you say are the most common reasons people bring their dogs to the vet? Of course, if you have a dog or dogs, you probably can name rather easily five or six common ailments dogs experience that require attention. Recently, VPI, Veterinary Pet Insurance Company, published their list of the most common conditions in dogs and cats that were treated by veterinarians. And not surprising to me, at the top of the list was skin allergies. This was followed by ear infections, non-cancerous skin masses, skin infections, and so on. So the problem of itchy dogs is very big and borne out by the data from VPI. So let's talk about itchy dogs. Fortunately, not long ago, I was able to speak with one of the top experts in veterinary dermatology about allergies in dogs, Dr. Joel Griffiths. Let's listen now. 
Joel, we're so glad you're here because I'll tell you, so many of our listeners right now are having real problems with their itchy dogs. Is it safe to assume, Joel, that most of these are environmental allergies and not food allergies? Certainly, there are, there are variations you never know for sure without kind of going through a rather detailed history and talking about what's happening, but it's a great time of year for environmental allergy, especially there in the desert where you are. Right. And tell us the signs and behaviors that we may see in our dogs with allergies to things in the environment, or or you may call them um, atopic dermatitis? That's right. You know, in general, the, the bottom line is they're just itchy dogs. Yeah. Um, and while there are a number of different reasons for itchiness in dogs, uh, certainly environmental allergy or atopy or atopic dermatitis, as you'll hear it called, uh, is top of the list. And, you know, that can include itchiness just in general, scratching with those back feet up toward the sides, the armpits, uh, licking and chewing at the paws. Uh, rubbing at the face, especially around the eyes, scratching at the ears, actual ear infections, you know, chewing at various places on the body when you look there and you just don't see anything. So any of those can be common symptoms of environmental allergy. Which is different than humans. We'll, we'll have more of the nasal congestion and the runny nose and the throat, and they get more skin and ears and eyes, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we will see the occasional dog that does some, you know, eye discharge or, or does some coughing, sneezing, things like that. But I would say that's much less common than itchy skin uh, with dogs with allergy. Joel, explain the connection between ear infections and allergies in dogs. Well, in general, what happens with many of our allergic dogs is they'll get ear inflammation first. So their ears will become red and inflamed, and then oftentimes the infections are actually secondary. Now, again, there are other causes for uh, secondary ear infections, but certainly out of here, environmental allergy is, is one of those that's near the top of the list. So as a result of all of that, uh, inflammation and swelling within the ear, we end up with really what are opportunistic uh, bacterial and yeast infections within the ears. Mm. And oftentimes with, with dogs with allergic ear disease, you know, some of these can be really frustrating to owners and, and even to veterinarians because you look in those ears and, and really you find nothing except a lot of inflammation. You even do some little swabs and look under the microscope and you still find nothing. You know, those are some good cues that uh, maybe there's a systemic cause that oftentimes is, is allergic in origin. And talking about systemic cause, you, you actually treated one of our dogs, our dog Paco, who suddenly developed these hot spots all over his body, and you found it to be a, a bacterial overgrowth in his coat, which was cause of our itchy dog. Right. Many of our dogs end up with secondary bacterial infections, and that's a great point because it's, you know, it, it's such a common symptom and one that really not only can be treated uh, with less harmful medications, but can also be treated oftentimes by people at home just by what I call cleaning them up. You know, there are things that you can do to manage secondary infections. Tell us about the various home remedies or non-prescription things that we can do ourselves for our dogs that are suffering from the biting of the paws and the hot spots and the scratching. You bet. Well, one of the most common things that we'll see uh, as kind of a, a, a symptom of allergic disease is that they will get secondary infections. And those secondary infections can be bacterial, which is most common, and also yeast in origin. And when we're dealing with those, the secondary infections, again, they're a symptom, not a cause of allergy. But oftentimes, if you resolve the infections, then many of our allergic individuals are, you know, anywhere from 50 to 75% better. So mm. that's uh, that's some pretty good progress. Yeah. So the things that you can do as first line uh, really is clean them up. 
up. Use antibacterial shampoos, bathe them uh, really often. Uh, you know, what we find over and over again, I deal with the same question almost every day that, well, you know, I thought we were all told we shouldn't bathe a dog very often. My answer is kind of uh, always the same. It's, you know, for normal dogs that may be true, but I don't see normal dogs. We see our dogs with allergic disease and infections. And so by using some, you know, just common bathing, and I'll have folks bathing their animals as much as once a week. So in doing that weekly bathing, you really accomplish two things. You know, one, you decrease the load of bacterial and yeast organisms on the body. And two, you can actually remove some of those allergens that can cling to their coat and their skin uh, that are the really the source of uh, oftentimes of their allergic disease anyway. So bathing is a good thing. Now, I think you've got to be the word of caution about what you're using. I'm not saying go grab your head and shoulders or something like that and bathe them once a week because that may be a little bit abrasive or, or uh, cause some drying and, and, and things along those lines. So you, you do have to be a little bit cautious about what you're using. And that's where, you know, you say over-the-counter things versus prescription products. Uh, actually, you know, in, in some of the, the shampoos, you may get a lot better uh, benefit from using some of these, you know, true veterinary shampoos uh, that are made for managing infections especially. Yeah, and I just want to expand on that point there. Before seeing you, um, Dr. Griffiths, we did use over-the-counter or just uh, anti-itchy shampoos that we bought at Petco or PetSmart. Did not do anything. But the medicated shampoo you, that we did receive from your office really did uh, make a big difference. Well, and if I can as well, just to address that whole medicated word. You know, I have folks that come in uh, day in and day out and say, oh, yeah, we use a medicated shampoo. And to the kind of unknowing public, you just assume that it's a medicated shampoo. Right. They're all the same, and really nothing could be further from the truth. So there are probably five or six categories of those, quote, medicated shampoos that we'll use, and it's important to kind of match those with the condition that you're treating. So in dogs like Paco, when we were looking at all of the bacteria on his skin, we were using an antibacterial shampoo. Right. If right. instead we chose, say, an oatmeal shampoo, that might help a little bit with his itchiness, but it's not going to accelerate the resolution of that infection like using a corhexidine-containing shampoo or something like that. The choices actually can make a big difference. So let's expand on treatment options. So you mentioned shampooing. How about uh, limiting exposure or antihistamines? You bet. I mean, there's a lot of those for, for mildly allergic dogs or those that are very seasonal. There are a lot of rather simple things. I mean, certainly, you know, again, bathing and the various conditioners that help that to soothe those itchy dogs once their infections are better. Um, you know, there are antihistamines. We use everything from over-the-counter Benadryl to chlorpheniramine to uh, medications like Zyrtec now are over-the-counter. Any one of those can be used in the dog if we're using the right dose. And people are often surprised at the dosing that we use because in many cases it's a lot more than you would use as a person. And it's, you know, it's important to remember these are dogs, people. So physiology is a little bit different, and it's, uh, so we've got to dose them appropriately if we expect them to work. Um, that said, for our allergic dogs, the success rate at resolving allergies is probably only about 30% by most people's account. However, uh, our ability to decrease their level of itchiness by, you know, a, a notch or two or three can be rather significant. So those are useful. 
fatty acids are along those same lines. Uh, fatty acids get a lot of press, and you've got everything from Lipiderm that's over the counter to uh, the prescriptions like you know Derm caps and 3B caps and various EFA and Omega Derms, and those are just some of the names that you'll hear. But all of those have the same goal in mind, which is supplementing those essential fatty acids, and those have been shown to increase coat health, but also in our allergic dogs, they can actually decrease itchiness a bit. So those things will help us as well. Those are some rather conservative and milder things you can use. Joel, let's say you're seeing a dog in your office with bad itching from environmental allergies, uh, with mm-hmm. no with no or little relief from everything you mentioned, the, the home right. stuff and the antihistamines right. and the shampoos and, and so forth, the omega-3 supplements. How do you approach a situation? It is one where, um, just a word about when to come in, I mean, I would encourage people to you know, choose to do that sooner rather than later right. just because there are so many things that you can do that end up being not based on a whole lot and a, and a lot of misdirection. So I have a lot of, of well-meaning people that consult the Internet or their friend down the street or the, you know, the, the uh, you know, folks at, at the very stores and all of those things. And, and many of those people have really good information. But sometimes you, you start doing lots of things in a whole lot of different directions that really leave you confused. And so one of the first things that we do is we spend a lot of time talking about the history and how things have developed. And then we want to take all of that information and formulate a plan that's kind of a logical, stepwise approach. And so the things that we have at our disposal for the milder dogs might be things that we skip right over in a dog that in our exam room is really just scratching itself like crazy and and is just a big disaster and and, uh, missing all his hair. So the things that we have as, as options are everything from, you know, using more aggressive medications, but oftentimes it's trying to define the specific nature of their allergy through everything from things like allergy testing to, uh, which then leads to giving them allergy shots, uh, to, you know, lots of different assessments along those lines, making sure there are no parasites, um, making sure there's no infection. So a number of those things are important before we get to some of those next steps. Dr. Joel Griffiths, it's always a pleasure. You bet. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. In January of 1776, American patriot Thomas Paine published a pamphlet called Common Sense. It helped spark the American Revolution. This January, as we think about our goals for the coming year, let's revisit this historic document and hear what Paine told his fellow colonists. In his opening paragraph, Paine wrote, and I quote, A long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right, and raises, at first, a formidable outcry in defense of custom. In today's language, he was saying that it's easy to lose sight of how wrong something is when it becomes an everyday part of one's life. Let's be fair, that's exactly why we've used these segments each week to highlight the negative impact that excessive litigation has on daily life in America. Now, as we start a new year, we're also going to share stories about how excessive government regulation holds America back. It's time to challenge the status quo. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamericatv.org. When educator-turned-hip-hop artist D1 finished paying back his student loans, he celebrated by writing the song Sally Mae Back. Now he's teaming up with Sally Mae to help students get on track to paying off their loans. I'm passionate about helping people learn about financial literacy. The reality is that students are hungry for information. They want to understand the facts about paying back their loans and the best way to do it. Sally Mae's Rick Castellano adds, We're thrilled to work with D1 to help students get into the rhythm of repayment. He lays out the process and steps that are both direct and doable. 
teaching the right moves for building credit, and successfully paying back student loans. Now through January 11th, Sally Mae customers with eligible student loans have the chance to win up to $10,000 to pay down their loans. For D1's complete list of tips and to enter the Pays to Repay contest, visit SallyMay.com. That's SallyMay.com. I'm Bob Pebo for the Consumer Radio Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Animals Today. Hey, have you ever checked out the blog for Animals Today? If not, take a minute and look at what's there, okay? AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Animals Today is now in its ninth consecutive year of weekly broadcasts. And on the website, you can access and listen to all our prior shows. Animals Today brings you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animal welfare and animal rights topics. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Also, like us on Facebook. And you can also go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. And really, if you like what we're doing here and want to support the ongoing production of the show, consider donating to them. Their website is aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. I want to share with you what I find to be one of the most irritating annoying yearly events involving animals. It's the Iditarod dog sled race in Alaska, now branded as the last great race. Now, I know, like you guys, that yes, some dogs are bred to be happy in the snow and to run long periods of time, but really, this so-called race has devolved into nothing more than the commercial abuse of innocent dogs who truly will run until they die. There are now commercial sponsors, a fancy website, and a whole industry centered around this form of animal abuse. This year's race begins in about two weeks, so I wanted to supply you with the truth about what happens at Iditarod, beginning with the story. I want to share with you an email that I received from one of my acquaintances. He took a trip to Alaska, and he sent me an email knowing about my fondness for animals, and it shows a picture of him at a sled dog race, and commenting that he got to meet the famous Larry. So I opened up the attachment, expecting it will tell me who this famous Larry is, and I see that the attachment is an article dated March 19, 2009, entitled Mackey's famed lead dog retires. So I read the article and basically talks about this nine-year-old dog, Larry, who helped Lance Mackey's owner win a third straight Iditarod trail sled dog race last month. And now that will be the last race of Larry's career. Then, of course, I had to educate myself about the Iditarod trail dog sled race. And basically what it is, it's this grueling expedition from Anchorage to Nome, Alaska, which kicks off every March. It's only one of several such races in which mushers or dog sled drivers compete for thousands of dollars and other prizes, and the dogs are viewed as little furry snowmobiles and are likely, actually, if they finish the race alive, um, they're lucky, or without serious injuries, they're lucky. Now, two sports calmness that were covering the event have described the sled dog race as follows. Imagine racing your dog from Orlando to New York, depriving him of sleep, 
to complete the course as quickly as possible, mushing through waste, deep water, and ice, with the dog losing about 10 pounds through the ordeal. Or consider yourself tethered to 15 other runners on a 50-foot gang line while pulling 400 pounds. And imagine flipping on your back and being dragged down an icy incline. So I'm thinking that these calmness are probably exaggerating. So I did some research on my own on the Internet, and I wanted to learn more about it. And you know what I learned? That these columnists were not exaggerating. In fact, in my opinion, their statements were pretty mild compared to what I read, and more factually from the pictures what I saw. I mean, pictures pretty much states the facts, right? And these are pictures right off not only the official website of the Iditarod dog sled race, but other websites that simply describe the race. And I see these dogs tied together, pulling a sled and a person in what appears to be biting winds and snowstorms. I see one still picture of the dogs that, are, that got tangled and tumbled, and legs and necks being strangulated in the tow lines. Another showed a video of dogs' faces and bodies completely covered with ice, and their eyes literally glued together from the hardened ice. And another depicts dogs with their front paws raw and bloody. And one final picture shows exhausted dogs just lying on the snow. So here's some facts. About 1,500 dogs start the Iditarod, but more than one-third are flown out every year because they become sick or injured or exhausted. They're, they're usually husky mixes, weighing only about 40 or, or 45 pounds, and usually tethered to 15 other runners and a 400-pound sled. Now, the force to run for hours through these frozen rivers and dense forests and long hours of darkness and, and treacherous, grueling climbs, and temperatures can be down to 60 degrees below zero. They must run about 100 miles per day. It's 100 miles a day. I mean, I, I don't drive 100 miles a day. They get a few hours of sleep each day, a few hours, and the race can take up to 17 days. And we spoke about the dog's feet becoming bloodied and raw, and that's due to the, uh, them being cut on the ice. And it's not uncommon for the dogs to get stress fractures and, and become sick, and they get gastric ulcers and intestinal viruses. At least one or two dogs die every year, and the causes range from strangulation in the tow lines internal hemorrhaging, they, they, some are trampled by moose or suffer from hyperthermia or pneumonia. And even if the dogs survive a race, they still may suffer and die days or weeks after the race. So how does this happen, you ask? Well, result of extreme exercise. What happens, you get a buildup of this lactic acid and other chemicals from muscle degradation. And this causes toxicity in the liver and, and kidneys, which slowly and painfully kills the animal. Now, please, know that there are other grueling and deadly, although not well-publicized, endurance races involving the dogs. And, and don't think that because I'm not mentioning those specifically that I think they're okay. I will make myself as clear as possible here. I think this entire sport of dog sledding, if you choose to call it a sport, is a form of animal cruelty. And if you just heard what I described here about the event, how can one not say that this is not a form of animal cruelty? How can this be justified? One article describes it as the spirit of Alaska. More than a race, a commemoration. Because it's a tradition, it's been going on for years, is that justifiable? Supporters of the sport say people love to go because there's no race in the world like it and, and, and a place where you can see the most beautiful train Mother Nature has to offer. Well, why can't people see the most beautiful train Mother Nature has to offer without supporting an event that abuses dogs? And finally, supporters claim it's an enjoyable to see man and animal against nature. Well, as far as I read, 
Man has not died in this race. So it's really man forcing animal against nature. And we haven't even talked about, and I'm not going to, about what happens behind the scenes of these, this event. I mean, what do you think happens to the thousands of dogs that are bred to run in sled races, but they're not fast or good enough? It's just another example of us humans using animals for our pleasure, for our amusement, for our profit. Like any other tourist attraction, the motive of the Iditarod and similar races is money. Human Profiting for pain and misery of the animals. You're listening to Animals Today Radio, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in its eighth year, Animals Today covers all animal-related topics and issues worldwide with an emphasis on animal welfare. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Your donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals will support the ongoing production of Animals Today. Just visit aianimals.org and click Support Us. And thanks for listening. 